Good morning. Our scripture for this morning comes from the book of Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks. Welcome. Good morning. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to Lima Campus on this spring break day and uh, daylight savings time. So we're really glad you're here. Well, the name Scott Tucker is a name for Kansasidians that may be familiar. And if you're not from Kansas City, you now have heard his name. In an amazing documentary by Netflix called Dirty Money, Scott Tucker's life has been displayed for the whole world to see. With modest beginnings, uh, entrepreneurial zeal, and a charming personality, Scott Tucker took the payday loan business from an unassuming storefront to the vast reaches of the internet. In the process, Scott Tucker sidestepped U.S. banking laws by conveniently ensconcing his companies in the sovereign nations of Native Americans in the United States. Along with that, he had multiple deceptions in truth and lending laws. And through all of this, Scott Tucker made some, get this, $400 million in a short time. He did it on the backs of the most economically vulnerable and the poorest of poor in our nation, all to give him a lavish lifestyle of several palatial homes across the country, his own private jet, um, and an amazing accoutrements of all kinds of goodies, including hundreds of thousand dollar race cars that he raced. Now, Scott Tucker's bubble would implode with a 1.2, yes, billion federal court judgment against him. The repossession of all his assets, and as of January 2018, a long extended prison sentence. The question I have is, how did Scott Tucker justify getting so rich by exploiting the oh-so-poor. I think any of us can rationalize and justify almost anything. Isn't it true that the human heart is the ultimate spin zone? <laughs> it is in my heart and it's in yours. What stuns me about this brilliant documentary is it ends with an interview with Scott Tucker. The interviewer, if you will imagine, asked him this question. Are you a moral person? 
to which there is this long, awkward pause. I mean, very awkward for a documentary. Unedited. To which Scott Tucker says these words. I am a business person. Now, Scott Tucker's response is revealing on many levels. Let me make sure you know that my purpose is not to cast dispersion at any business or the goodness of business. It's not also to throw self-righteous stones at anyone. Because I believe in my heart and your heart, I believe when it comes to an inordinate love of money and wealth, each one of us here, younger, older, richer, poorer, new to a spiritual journey of faith in Christ, or where we've been a Christian a long time, all of us are vulnerable to an inordinate love of money and wealth. Because it has a strong gravitational pull, and it gives distorting power, and it has alluring, deceptive charms. But what I really love about this documentary is it does something important to our culture. It says to our culture, Let's think a moment. Is financial integrity something important? Or do we as a culture look the other way and ignore dirty money and the injustice it inevitably perpetuates? But a more hunting question to me is while we rightly question the dirty money in society, we seldom question the dirty money in the church. It seems to me it's one thing, a terrible thing, to exploit the vulnerable, but what about deceiving the faithful? It's one thing to rob the poor, and that's a most egregious thing, but what about robbing God? And what happens to a local faith community when dirty money fills its coffers. In our text this morning, we encounter, in my opinion, one of the most mysterious and sobering stories in all of the New Testament. It's a story about dirty money, actually. One that leads not to a prison sentence, but to immediate divine judgment. You ready for it? If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts. It goes in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4 as we as a church family continue across our campuses the study of the book of Acts. Now we have said so far that the emphasis on the filling of the Holy Spirit has several manifestations. In Acts chapter 4, you will see two of them that are indicators of being filled with the Spirit. The first one in chapter 4 is a strong emphasis of boldness in proclaiming the gospel message. On the heels of that, as we go to the end of chapter 4, is the next evidence of being filled with the Spirit, <clears throat> and that is a radical generosity. Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to grasp that the Spirit-filled life profoundly shapes and empowers everyday economic life. He wants us to grab that connection. 
So what does he do? Luke writes some of the finest Greek in the New Testament. He is sophisticated, and here we see his sophistication from a literary brilliance. Because he takes two stories that are contrasting, and he weaves within it three marks of the Jesus economy. Three marks of the Jesus economy. And you will follow along if you're taking notes or in your mind. These are the three that Luke will tell us as he weaves this contrasting story together between Barnabas and someone called Ananias and Sapphira. So these are the three marks that will help you stay with us as we unpack this text. The first one is gracious stewardship, first mark we'll look at. Secondly is radical generosity, and third is financial integrity. So the text flows around this picture of gracious stewardship, radical generosity, and financial integrity. You ready? Here we go. First, we notice the gracious stewardship, and I want to reread this text so it sinks into our hearts and minds. Beginning with verse 32, we read these words, chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything or any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as anyone had need. So here we see Luke giving us in these verses the early church experienced remarkable unity and caring for each other in the most tangible manner. Right? And at Christ's community, we've been in existence almost 30 years. From the very beginning, we've had a mission statement that continues to guide us. The first part of the mission statement is anchored right here in these texts. And that is our mission statement is to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. What we understand in Acts and in our own mission today is that mutual caring fuels disciple-making mission. They go together, and we see this in the book of Acts. And mutual caring, of course, in a community of faith, expresses itself in many ways of generosity and love. But we don't want to miss, this text takes us to financial generosity. So what is Luke saying, and what is he not saying in this text? First, what Luke is saying. Luke is saying that these early followers of Jesus recognized foundationally that they were not ultimate owners of what they possessed. They were stewards. They knew the psalmist. Psalm 24.1 is clear in the Old Testament. The earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. They understood that as stewards or trustees of everything, that they would give an account to God one day for how they stewarded it or managed it. They knew from Jesus' teaching, which massive amount of teaching, that money mattered to Jesus. <laughs> he talked a lot about it. And material wealth was something that they understood would be asked to give an account and it was to care for the needs of others. Apostle John said that powerfully in 1 John three seventeen: if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how on earth is the idea... Does God's love abide in him? 
So we see God's incarnate love in these narrative pages of Acts, in the early believers' financial stewardship, and it had a stunning outcome. Luke is explicit. What is the outcome? There was not one person in their fellowship that had need. That's stunning. And it's a testimony of the gospel's radical, comprehensive transformation, not only in individual lives, but in a community. Holy Spirit's empowerment on it and its impact on the flourishing of a faith community. Notice also, Luke emphasizes in strong language great power and great grace in this text. Now, grace, properly understood, of course, that is costly grace and not cheap grace, costly grace inevitably leads to generous people. We see this all through Scripture, that hearts touched by costly grace lead to hands of sacrificial love. They go together. So Luke is emphasizing gracious stewardship. What is Luke not saying here? As I said a couple weeks ago in an earlier text in Acts 2, this text, like the earlier text, has been woefully misinterpreted and egregiously abused. That is advocating the Bible's, quote, support of economic systems of socialism or communism or collectivism. This is completely not what this text teaches. The misunderstanding often comes from this phrase, if you have your Bible open, that is repeated twice, they had everything in common. What is Luke saying in context? This is not about coercive redistribution of wealth or income by either a government or ecclesial authority. This book, the whole book of Acts, all of Scripture, affirms the centrality of private property, for example. Luke's focus here on houses and lands, if you notice that language, reflects first century economic life. Let me just take just a moment. First century economy is different than ours today. The first century economy was built on a, a, a sum zero assumption. Based, it was all based, wealth was based on land, and there's a limited amount of land. In other words, when someone got richer with land, someone else got poorer because there was a finite reality. Does it make sense? It's called a sum zero economy. Today's modern economy is not some zero economy. Our wealth creation is more than land. It is dynamic. It occurs in many ways. So if you were to take this text and bring it to our context, how does it apply to us? Well, you may have land, you may not. You may have a house, you may rent an apartment, right? The focus may be land, you might have that, or a house, but the focus is really like translating it an IRA, a stock gift, right? A portfolio of some kind, a year-end bonus, got it? That's the picture. The Jesus economy is built, first and foremost, on this bedrock understanding that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, are not ultimate owners of money or material wealth, to do whatever we want for our own indulgence. We are to steward it for God's glory, for the good of our families and taking care of them, the well-being of our local church, and the common good of all. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, let me pause for a moment and encourage all of us to reflect on our stewardship with some probing questions. Do I really believe that God owns everything I have? Think of everything you have, large or small. Secondly, am I taking seriously that one day I will stand before God and give an account of my entire life? 
including my financial stewardship, how I've managed the material wealth God has given me. So the first mark of the Jesus economy, as Luke unpacks it here, is gracious stewardship, foundational. But notice on the heels, we have this remarkable picture and story of a guy named Barnabas. And here we see radical generosity. Look at me at verses 36 to 37. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which Luke wants us not to miss this, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you have read the Bible at all or, or know the Bible, when you hear the name Joseph, you probably don't think of this Joseph, right? Because we think of Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, that was in Egypt, or we think Mary's guardian husband. Want to use that language? Her husband, Joseph. We don't think of this guy's name as Joseph. We only talk about him as Barnabas. In fact, I think that Barnabas is one of Luke's heroes. He will pepper him in the Acts narrative. Watch for it in the messages ahead. And he will describe him in amazing ways. But don't miss how he's introduced to us by Dr. Luke. He points out Barnabas' radical generosity. Now, the danger is we think the radical generosity is the size of the gift. And it may have been sizable. There are cues in the text. We don't know for sure, but you'll notice in the text that Barnabas is a Levite and has a Cyprian birth. Or Cyprus. Cyprus in the first century was prime real estate. It's an amazing island even today. So most likely this was prime real estate. It probably was in Cyprus. We don't know for sure. But the point is it is a sizable gift because the wealthy owned land and the non-wealthy didn't. So what we have here is an amazing sense of generosity. But it is not primarily the size. We need to understand the cultural grain in which this gift is given and how Barnabas goes against it in radical ways. Barnabas lived in a time across the Greco-Roman world where philanthropy or charitable giving was based on two things. This was the cultural norm. Patronage and reciprocity. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about Downton Abbey for a minute. Some of you are Downton Abbey fans. Uh, you remember what it was like for the Crawley family, they had employees in a sense, but more than that, right? They were patrons to their community. Um, and patronage and reciprocity went like this. The wealthy who owned the land, right? There was massive wealth inequality in the first century, even more than today, which is a concern across our globe. The wealthy had land, the wealthy didn't, the non-wealthy didn't. Very few people had land, okay? So the picture here is those who are landowners, those who had wealth, vast wealth, the vast majority, like 90-some percent, 98% of the average people had nothing almost in this time. Very little, except for a few merchants. So think of the Crawley family. And they often had a sense of giving, but the giving of patronage reciprocity meant I gave with strings attached. And we might think of it today as like, I'm going to give a large gift so I can have my name on the building. There was an expectation in this giving of giving to get something back. Conditionality, strings attached, honor, prestige. Now, if you want to impress your friends, you can tell them around the water cooler that Tom is going to quote an Athenian orator this morning. Doesn't happen very often, you're new. 
Usually, you know, it's like Dwight Schrute in the office. But uh, Socrates was an Athenian, not Socrates, a Socrates, was an Athenian who give us, in this time period, a window into philanthropy of this day. And this is so important to understand this text. He writes very uh, interesting. He says this, of the patronage system. He says, bestow your favors on the good. And then he says, if you benefit bad men, you will have the same reward as those who feed stray dogs. Now, in this context, stray dogs were like wild coyotes, not foo-foo and dogs we love, right? But notice his understanding of giving. Jesus' words and Jesus understood all this as a brilliant economist. He understood the Greco-Roman world. He wasn't a country bumpkin guy, okay? He challenges this patronage system right at its core. And in Luke, surprise, surprise, Luke wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke, we see this connection in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Let me read it for you. Listen carefully. Here's Jesus' words. Listen how it shatters patronage and reciprocity. When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, Jesus is not saying you can't invite your friends over for dinner. I mean, this is the kind of, anyway, I won't go in there. Of a poor interpretation of texts like this. He is challenging the cultural patronage system of reciprocity, conditionality, and our giving. And he said, you give without any thought of getting back for the glory of God. There is a radical generosity that shatters the con- cultural conventions of philanthropy in its time. This is why it's so important here. So let me ask the question in your generosity and mine. How are we growing in our generosity? We can't look at this text without asking that question. Are our lifestyles such that we manage things well where we have the margin to be increasingly generous in our giving? What does our checkbook say? What does our credit or debit card say? What does our financial portfolio say? What do, and this is important for me as we get closer to April, what do my tax returns say? Yes, there's giving in our family that's not tax deductible. We do. But let me tell you, my accountant and people around me said, this is your giving for the year? You bet. Am I growing in generosity? And are you? Now, some of you, I, I can see the look in your eyes. Hearing words about money, particularly about giving money from a pastor, may seem, I'll say it nice, self-serving. But let me just remind you of our intention, of our teaching team at Christ Community. We teach what the Bible teaches the best we can with no agenda about material wealth. And this is where it is. It's not because I want something from you, but because I so want God's best for you. Jesus said the good life is the generous life. He said it's more blessed or he's happy to give than to receive. Jesus understood that the good life God has for us is a generous life in every dimension of life, including our finances. The Jesus economy begins with gracious stewardship, foundation. It's all God's. Secondly, 
Isn't it brilliant how it connects here? It involves radical generosity, but notice where it goes. That is financial integrity. Now, in the original text, there are no chapter breaks. So when we start chapter 5, we see the next story. There's Barnabas and his amazing God-given generosity. And all of a sudden, we are entering a new story. This is a sobering one. Their names are given to us. Why Luke gives us that, I'm not sure, but I got an idea. Because I think he's going to drip it with irony. Because the names of the couple we now are introduced to are Ananias and Sapphira. What do they mean? Hebrew text of Ananias means, get this, you ready? You should smirk. The Lord is gracious. And his bride, Sapphira, means she's beautiful. Hmm. Great names, but as we'll see in the story, their character do not match it. I think Luke is giving us a bit of irony as we anticipate the story. Now, I can imagine, like others, Ananias and Sapphira were caught up in a generosity revolution of the early church. We don't know how they were involved. We know they're wealthy because they have land. We don't know a lot, but we are told enough to fill in the gaps. Luke tells us that they sold a piece of property, and both Ananias and Sapphira knew the exact details of the sales contract. Ananias then brings, you can imagine this, he brings some of the proceeds, and notice what the text says. He lays it at the feet of the apostles. In fact, this is done three times, I think, in in this section. What does he mean? Well, It is a sense of worship and submission, but it is a public display where others are observing it. Hmm. Now, how Peter knew what was going on is fun to imagine, isn't it? But I want to suggest that however, if God specifically told him in a miraculous way, or he said, something doesn't smell right here. Peter completely eviscerates them. At a visceral level, first Ananias in verses 3 through 5. Notice Luke gives us the specific words. Ditto. But Peter said, verse 3 through 5, Ananias, why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back For yourself, a part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Sure. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Sure. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Clearly, Ananias has a money problem, but he's got a greater problem. And that's a heart problem. Notice, Peter makes crystal clear that Ananias had all the freedom imaginable to sell or not sell his land. He had all the freedom to give all or part of the proceeds of the land. That's not the issue. What Ananias doesn't have the freedom to do in his community was to give the deceitful impression that he was giving all of the proceeds of the sale when he was only giving a part of it. That's the rub. That's the dirty money. Not the amount, 
the deception that went with it. Ananias had a deceitful heart, and he is seeking his own vain glory and not the glory of God. Isn't that what the patronage reciprocity system furthered? Absolutely. He's culturally being right on. He's doing what everybody else did in the culture. He wanted to look good in the neighborhood. And he was wealthy. So he was operating on a cultural grid and not a gospel grid. In the gospels, Jesus repeatedly criticized this, didn't he? Giving to be seen by others. Giving so you can get back something. Acceptance, looking good in the neighborhood. And Peter's words, don't they just cut through all rationalizations or a cultural framework? Ananias must have justified his actions in noble ways. But Ananias' grievous sin, notice what the text says, comes from the pit of hell itself. You see how the language of Satan emerges in this story? Peter makes so clear that Ananias' deceit was not only a lie to himself, it was a lie to the community, but ultimately to the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't just about the money. The money was the conduit for deception and stealing from the glory of God. I have to be very transparent. No matter how many times I've read this story, when I come to verse 5, I'm just, I'm a wreck. Because there are very few places in Scripture like this. There's only one other place in Acts. And it's King Herod who tries to steal the glory from God and he's instantly dead. Can you imagine after Peter's words, and the text is very specific, Ananias drops dead. Not wiggling dead, not rigor more. He is rock dead. That's the idea. This is divine, crispy like bacon, without me being too graphic. Wow. Man. And then, if that's not enough, his wife comes in three hours later in the story. Read more of the story. It's just filled with goodies. It's like Peter says, okay, did you sell that? What was, your, what was your sales contract? Did you sell it for that amount? She says, yeah, 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 yeah. Bam! Dead. I'm not making light of it. Is there not a hint of a couple in a garden earlier in the Bible here? And at first glance, I don't know, I struggle with this, and I've been a follower of Jesus a long time. This immediate judgment by God seems out of place in the Acts narrative, doesn't it? Many of us struggle, do we not, to process in this narrative when there have been so many miracles of life-giving restoration, and now suddenly here is a miracle of miraculous intervention by God that brings the swiftest judgment? And the question that challenges my own sin and my life is why were Ananias and Fire not given the opportunity to repent of their sin there? Like I have, like you have. Most of the time in Scripture we see this long, long thread of God's mercy and patience towards sinners like you and me. I don't have all the answers. Let me give you three observations that I think will help at least fill in some of the gaps of the why. I'm still trying to figure this out. First, like nothing else, the sin of deception shatters trust. That can be in marriage, friendship, a business relationship, or in a community. Relational intimacy and flourishing is built on trust. What oxygen is to our physical bodies, trust is to our relationships. 
Deceit profoundly destroys relationships. It has to be tied somewhat there. Secondly, deception sows seeds of destruction in a community. It's just a matter of time until the putrid fruit of suspicion, conflict, and disunity emerge when there's deception in a community. Third, I think the explicit reference to Satan gives us a hint. I believe Satan was working to get a quick foothold in the early church and get the church off its gospel mission. Here in Acts, we have this vulnerable, fragile new community emerging. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Perhaps this was Satan's early strategic strike against the church. Isn't it interesting? He uses Ananias and Zephyra and he does it in terms of money. And perhaps this was Jesus' first counterpunch to Satan in protecting his church. I don't know. It's often said, if you're in church circles, that Satan falls from heaven and enters the choir loft. You know, we have all kinds of music preferences and things that get us off track, but I want to suggest this text is not about the choir loft. That perhaps Satan's greatest strategy is more focused on our pocketbooks and portfolios. Notice how this story ends. There's great fear. This is the language that comes across the community. This fear is not a fear of cowering in the corner like God is going to zap me at every moment because I'm bad. It is a sobering sense of the seriousness of the sin and its consequences to my life, my relationships, my faith community, and ultimately an affront to a holy, righteous God. A gospel-centered people has a right understanding not only the grace of God, but the fear of God. Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, will talk about how the fear of God is vital for spiritual growth and formation. Yes, we are a people of grace. We are saved from the wrath of God. Based on his shed, atoning blood, there's nothing we can do to earn it. Sometimes we buy into a very cheap grace that is devoid of the fear of God completely. And the call to live a holy life before our audience of one. This is rampant in the church in America. Early church never lost sight of the fear of God as they lived fully into the rich grace of God. As they pursued a wise and godly gospel life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us this here in Acts. The writer of Ecclesiastes, timeless truth of canonical scripture, across the scriptures, tells the path of wisdom and meaning in life ends with this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, a great text to memorize. Says the conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Properly fearing God in the gospel of grace means we recognize our accountability to Jesus as our creator and redeemer. God is never mocked. God is never deceived. We can pull the wool over our own eyes, our family eyes, other people's eyes, our communities, but we can never pull the wool over God's eyes. A proper fear of God informs every aspect of our life, obviously. But here in the text, that includes our financial integrity. So friends, God knows if I or you are cutting corners this week. God knows when we are doing a good day's work for our employer or we're not. God knows when we are paying our bills on time. 
God knows when we are showing up and work on time. Being accurate in our expense reports. God knows and he cares about that. When we are filling out our tax forms. God knows what we give, why we give it, where we give it. He knows all that. See, how people manage and make their money and give their money speaks loudly as to who they really are. Jesus said, follow the money trail. We hear that language all the time. Where your heart is, your treasure is. Follow the money trail. Follow the money trail. If I were to follow the money trail in your life, what would it say about your heart? The money trail always leads to the condition of the human heart. It's my belief that one of our greatest testimonies of the authenticating truth of the gospel is how we exhibit and live out individually and collectively in this time the Jesus economy of gracious stewardship, yes, radical generosity, and financial integrity. In his letter to the Ephesians, isn't it amazing? Here's Rabbi Paul, becomes the Apostle Paul. He takes the gospel and says, what are the implications to my money life? Now listen carefully, do not miss this, Ephesians 4.28, when he says what? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need impregnated in this gospel implication of our economic life are the core pieces of the Jesus economy. The gospel leads us to private property, hard work, financial integrity, gracious stewardship, and radical generosity. It's right there. So how are we managing the financial resources entrusted to us? Are we exhibiting financial integrity in all that we do Let me just say, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, what Jesus wants most from you is not your money, he wants your life. Because he loves you so much. He wants you. And he wants you to experience the good life he died for and rose from the dead. The resurrected Jesus, and notice the language of resurrection in the book of Acts. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you and to give you this abundant life and this intimate relationship. This is the life you were created for. It's the life you long for. Only Jesus can give you that when you embrace him by grace through faith. Jesus died on the cross for you and me and he loves you and he wants to graciously forgive your sins. He wants to give you a new life from the inside out and he longs to lead you down the gracious path of extraordinary intimacy and integral wholeness. What can wash away my sin, the great hymn says. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the, but the blood of Jesus. Have you embraced him? Do you know him? Dirty money is a big problem, isn't it? Dirty money is a problem in our lives, it's a problem in society, and it is a problem in the church. What we must realize behind dirty money ultimately lurks a dirty heart sinful heart that needs cleansing and forgiveness that only Jesus, our risen Messiah Lord, can give. And may we embrace him and experience the life he has for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to use the goodness of material resources for your glory. But you would also open our eyes to idols that lurk there areas of attention and help us to realize, Lord, if you are not Lord of all, you are not Lord at all. So may you be Lord, gracious as you are, merciful as you are, loving as you are, 
in all that we have for your glory and praise. Amen.